Thank you for listening to this BakerBots podcast. BakerBots has the experience, knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. For more information on BakerBots practices, please visit us at bakerbots.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Loesch, and I'm excited to be with you today for another episode of the Energy Enforcement Insider. The podcast provides quick hits on the latest trends and developments in regulatory compliance and enforcement matters impacting the energy industry. Along with me today, as always, is Brendan Quigley from New York. Hello, Brendan. Hey, Michael. How are you? All right. Doing well. There have been some litigation developments in the past few weeks regarding voluntary self-disclosure and implications for senior executives, which we think are important, right, and relevant to the energy industry and um, provide us with also a reminder about the importance of good upjohn warnings when conducting internal investigations. So why don't we jump into that? Brendan, tell us what happened. So we saw two cases recently that involved issues around representing individuals and companies in the corporate enforcement context and in the internal investigation context. One, United States v. Coburn and Schwartz was an FCPA prosecution out of New Jersey. And the second, United States v. Toronto was a fraud prosecution out of the Southern District of New York. And while there were some differences in, in kind of the procedural fact pattern of all the cases, they both involved situations where the criminal defendants had been executives of the company. That company conducted an internal investigation on, of certain conduct in furtherance of the company's desire to cooperate with the DOJ. Um, in light of DOJ's voluntary disclosure policies, the company ended up turning over those executive statements to the Department of Justice. Those executives were later charged by DOJ in both those cases. And in both cases, on somewhat different theories, they moved to suppress the statements that they had made to company counsel that were later turned over to DOJ. And in both cases, the court denied the motions to suppress. While these cases arose in the context of efforts to stop the government from using these statements at trial, they're a good reminder of kind of best practices and considerations that corporate counsel, whether outside corporate counsel or in-house corporate counsel, need to think about in conducting witness interviews and internal investigations. Let's put this into some context a little bit. What's the background on this? How do these rulings fit into the big picture right now? Back in, I think, 2015, the DOJ, in kind of response to the widespread criticism that no individuals or no high-ranking individuals are prosecuted following the financial crisis, and we can debate whether that criticism was warranted or not, but in response to that, the DOJ had changed some of its guidelines. There was a memorandum put out by Lisa Monaco, who this was in the Obama administration. She's now the deputy attorney general in the Biden administration. And there was also uh, the advent of the FCPA pilot program, whereby companies could get cooperation credit and not get charged by the Department of Justice if they voluntarily self-disclosed misconduct and cooperated with the government. And that policy, the FCPA pilot program policy has, with some differences and some changes, almost all, I think, components of the Department of Justice now have adopted similar policies. And as I said, one of the things that policy requires for companies to get essentially lenient treatment from the Department of Justice is voluntary self-disclosure of misconduct and cooperation. And in many cases, that means making 
the information gleaned during interviews with employees in an internal investigation available to the DOJ. Right. And this goes alongside of increasing emphasis on the prosecution of corporate executives, right? Correct. I mean, the idea here is to essentially increase the incentives for companies to cooperate and provide information on culpable individuals or potentially culpable individuals so that DOJ could go ahead and prosecute those people. And there have been a number of cases over the last couple of years where criminal defendants, former executives of companies have taken, understandably, issue with that and, and tried to raise a number of theories, largely unsuccessfully, to suppress the statements they made to outside counsel. And the two cases we're talking about now, U.S. v. Colbert and Schwartz and U.S. v. Toronto, both decided within the last six weeks or so are examples of that. Right. So what are the takeaways here? It seems to me that the importance of being very thoughtful, deliberate, and thorough in internal investigations when you're taking testimony from or interviews of senior executives is critically important. A hundred percent. Again, neither of these cases were focused on whether the lawyers involved had or had not committed wrongdoing. But again, I think given the fact that this issue has been litigated in cases, will continue to be litigated in other cases, more companies self-disclose, it's important to remember these cases reinforce that when interviewing individuals in the context of an internal investigation, corporate counsel, and that means both outside counsel and in-house counsel, should give the employee what's called an upjohn warning. Right. And most practitioners in this area are familiar with the upjohn warnings. And my experience has been that there's a lot of variability in how they are executed and not everybody implements those warnings to interview subjects, you know, in the same way. And yeah, look, I think that if the variability is for the right reason, what is sufficient in terms of an upjohn warning, what the council needs to do to comply with their other ethical obligations is going to depend on the facts and circumstances. So some variability isn't the end of the world if it's for the right reasons. But again, kind of the basics, the employee needs to know the counsel represents the company, not the individual, that the interview is privileged and confidential, and the company can decide to turn the contents of the interview over to the government. And remember, Upjohn itself came up in the context of an internal investigation. But there may be a need for a more fulsome discussion or consideration of whether the employee needs their own counsel. If, for example, you're responding to a government investigation, you should consider whether it's appropriate and take a hard look at it's whether it's appropriate for corporate counsel to interview the individual without their own counsel. If the government has sought testimony or records from the employee in an individual capacity where the employee could have individual exposure, it's not true in every case where the government or wants to speak to an individual, but it can be true. One thing that's come up in other cases is counsel should be careful not to create the impression that I gave an upjohn warning notwithstanding that they're also representing the individual. There was a case a number of years ago, we actually wrote a client alert on this, which I can include in the show notes, but where essentially the general counsel of the university, even though she had given an upjohn warning, the court held, she had essentially created the impression through her actions, including accompanying these senior university officials to individual interviews, to individual grand jury testimony, that she was representing them and not just the company. Like anything else, actions speak louder than words. And also, conflicts need to be, as in any other case, but particularly when you're doing a fact-finding investigation and the facts may change, 
it's especially critical to evaluate conflicts on an ongoing basis. Yeah. But, but there are circumstances, right, where there may be a need for, or the facts might warrant counsel to represent both the company and an individual. Is that advisable? And what about situations where there's representation of the company and the individual or representation separately of multiple individuals within the company? How do you work through that? There are definitely situations when it is advisable, and there are obviously plus sides for company counsel to represent both the individual and the company. Sharing of information is one. The key factors there are what is the likelihood for potential conflict between the company and the individual? Is the individual suspected of wrongdoing? Can the individual be liable in an individual capacity? What's the status of the investigation of the case? What's the size of the company? Obviously, a sole proprietorship may have different considerations than a multinational corporation, right? You know, I think one thing to point out, and we can also put this in the show notes, is that several years ago, the New York City Bar Association issued an ethics opinion on the use of pool counsel and strictly meaning the same counsel representing multiple individuals in the same investigation. And two recommendations they made were that even if a lawyer believes he or she can represent multiple prospective clients in the same investigation, the lawyer should confirm in writing the client's consent to the multiple representation in any event. And once the representation commences, the lawyer must identify and respond appropriately to any conflicts of interest that may arise. So that kind of covers the conflicts piece. The other thing that they referenced in that opinion was getting essentially an advanced confidentiality waiver that the clients agreed in writing that, you know, one client's information could be shared with the other and vice versa, right? You know, if you're representing four or five corporate executives in the same investigation, in the abstract, you have a duty of confidentiality to each client, but it's going to be hard for you to, just as a matter of practice, I'm sure, to kind of segregate what you learn from one client and not disclose that to the other, which is why, in this opinion, the New York City Bar Association recommended getting some type of advanced consent to uh, information sharing among the different clients. Just from an overall legal and compliance perspective, you know, it's critical to think through these representation issues before you just launch into an internal investigation, internal review of conduct that you consider the facts and circumstances and whether there are representation issues that arise, consult with outside counsel if you need to work through those issues, and also to ingrain good practices in your standard procedures for investigations, right, to ensure you've got well-crafted upjohn warnings that are used consistently, just a regular part of how you conduct business. The more you think about these and get them ingrained in your practices, the better the investigations will be and the easier these difficult issues will be to work through when inevitably they do arise. So um, any thoughts on that, brother? No, I agree. I mean, I think maybe, you know, we'll end where we started and this derives from the DOJ's and then other agencies now emphasis on voluntary disclosure and speed of voluntary disclosure. So like anything else, having those those checklists, those procedures in place beforehand will help you go through the steps when an issue arises because there's going to be a lot of pressure to get the facts, to get the facts quickly. And again, having that type of checklist, that type of process in place 
will help you make sure, despite that pressure, that you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's and thinking carefully about potential representation issues as the investigation progresses. 100%. I think that's great. And that's all we have for today. So let's wrap things up. We appreciate you all being with us today, and we hope you come back to join us for the next episode of the Energy Enforcement Insider. Bye-bye. This presentation is provided by Baker Botts LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, this communication may constitute attorney advertising.